0: Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis, chapter 14. Genesis, chapter 14. If you forgot your Bible this morning, you're certainly welcome to use those provided for you. You'll find our passage this morning on page 10 in those Bibles. We're going to begin reading in Genesis 14 and verse 17 as we continue our verse-by-verse study of these chapters of Genesis. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17, here's what we read. After his return from the defeat of Shadrlehomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. What we have here is the account of two kings, a king of Sodom a king of Salem, coming out to meet Abram as he is returning from battle. Abram and his allies have defeated King Shederlemer, Not sure how to say his name. Last Sunday night, we just called him King C. But he has been defeated. Abram and his friends, his local allies, have defeated them. The people who had been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah have been set free. The possessions that had been taken have been recovered. Abram has led this operation, Abram has been victorious, and now these two kings come out to meet Abram. There is a lot in these few verses. You might not think that at first, but there is a lot in these few verses. And so, um, in a couple of weeks, uh, when we're back here uh, doing this again, In Genesis 14, we will begin at this passage and I will be drawing out several lessons, several biblical principles and biblical truths that we see in this passage. But this morning, I have a different goal. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together in a few minutes, I want to draw our attention squarely onto our Savior Jesus Christ. I want us to see how this passage points to Him. I want you to see how this passage points to how glorious He is. I want our hearts to fall more in love with our Savior. Now, if you are perhaps one who is not very familiar with the Scriptures, you you might look at a passage like this, and you may say, Justin... (laughs) Where in these verses do you see anything about Jesus? In what possible way does this story, this account of these two kings coming to meet Abraham, how does this have anything to do with our Savior? But if by grace you know your Bible, and particularly if you've read the book of Hebrews, you know that this little passage Has something very, very important to say about our Savior. This king of Salem, this Melchizedek, is more important than we might think at first. And we don't have to go to the New Testament to learn this. We have a hint, even in the Old Testament, that there is something unique, something special about this man. There is a verse in the Old Testament that grabs our attention and helps us see how important this Melchizedek is. It's Psalm 110.4. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. A very important psalm. I reckon all the psalms are important, aren't they? This one is particularly important. Notice the first six words in English. The Lord says to my Lord. What does that mean? And we clearly have two persons here, and they're both called Lord. And they're speaking, one is speaking to the other. Who are these persons both called Lord? We use the word Lord in different ways. The word Lord in history is just referred to someone who is in authority. So we can use the word Lord to refer to our God or to refer to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We might begin praying, O Lord. The word Lord has also been used to refer to kings, to those who rule over a realm. You can picture somebody bowing before a king and addressing him as my Lord. In past centuries, if you were speaking to a man who was simply of a higher station than you, maybe a a duke or an earl in Great Britain in centuries past, you you would have addressed them as my Lord. How are you today, my Lord? There was even a, a time when wives would address their husbands this way. 1 Peter 3 speaks of Sarah, Sarah, referring to Abraham as Lord. So who are these two lords in Psalm 110? Who is speaking to who here? Well, the, the first word, Lord, is pretty easy to decipher, because what do you notice? What do you notice about the letters in the word Lord? They're all capital And we've learned many times here at Mount Hermon that when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the Hebrew, that is the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And so we know that the person speaking in Psalm 110 is God. But who is the second Lord? The one that David, who wrote this psalm, he says, This is my Lord. But when we begin reading the psalm, we, we see that God must be speaking here to a, a king. Notice the first three verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, that's God, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Do you notice the language there? Talk of a, of a mighty scepter. We're told that this Lord is to rule in the midst of His enemies. We're told that on the day of this person's power, His people will offer themselves freely to Him. So there's no doubt this psalm is about a king. This is God speaking to a king. And it must be a great king because David, the greatest king in all Israel, says he's my Lord. So we have a a king, a coming king, a king greater than David. And then comes verse 4. In verse 4, changes things. It's not what you expected. Look at verse 4. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and it's God, has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of who? 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 Melchizedek. We learn here that God has sworn to this coming king that he will be a priest forever. We have here a king who is also a priest. Here's the problem. In Israel, kings are not priests and priests are not kings. They come from two very different family lines. Kings come from the royal line, the line of Judah. You can't be a king if you come from the line of Levi. And priests, priests come from the line of Levi. You cannot be a priest if you come from the line of Judah. One man was not to hold both offices. There is a strict separation. Between priest and king, God prescribed it this way. Do you remember wicked King Saul? Do you remember what happened when King Saul tried to take for himself the office of priest? Samuel was late, at least in Saul's mind. Samuel was late coming. He was getting ready to go into battle. It was customary for the priest to come and offer a sacrifice before you go into the battle. And Saul is is waiting, and he's waiting, and Samuel the priest hasn't come, and he's waiting, and he gets impatient, and finally he says, Who needs a priest? I can do this. And Saul the king acts as a priest and makes the sacrifice. And as soon as he does, here comes Samuel. (laughs) And Samuel comes speaking on behalf of Almighty God. And Samuel says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul, you are to be removed as king. You would have had it been in the family line of the kings forever, but because of this, you will not keep your throne. Your son Jonathan will not sit on the throne. You have been forsaken by God because you have tried to be a king and a priest. And yet, here in Psalm ten, Psalm one hundred and ten, we have another king who's also a priest. And God doesn't seem very angry with him, does He? In fact, look at what God says to him. He's going to sit at God's right hand. He's going, God is going to put all His enemies under His feet. God is going to bless this priest king. Well, what's different? Well, among other things is this. Saul did not qualify to be a Levitical priest because he was not from the priestly tribe. But this king, the great king described in Psalm 110, has not taken for himself the role of a Levitical priest. No, he is going to be from a whole different order of priests. An order of priest kings. This coming king The one that God is going to sit at His right hand. He's not going to come from Aaron. He's going to be from the order of Melchizedek. Long before there was a Levi and Aaron and God's giving of the law at Mount Sinai, there was this man named Melchizedek. He was a a righteous man. He was a man of God. He was a priest and a king. And so shall this one be who is to come. Which means, Old Testament Jews, if you want to know who this great king is that's coming, if you want to know something about him, you ought to go back to Genesis and look at Melchizedek. He's going to be from the same order as that. And of course, it didn't take Jews long to figure out that this is a Messianic psalm. That this is a psalm about the one who is to come. The one promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. The one who's going to come and set the world right again. And they learned some valuable new information about him in Psalm 110. They knew he was going to be a king. A priest king. And so God was saying to His Old Testament people, if you want to learn about the Messiah who is to come, here's a clue. Go back and look at Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type, is a shadow of the One who is to come. The One who is to come will be from His order. And so, when we get to the book of Hebrews, and we get to Hebrews chapter 7, and the Hebrew writer wants to show us how glorious our Savior is as a priest, should it surprise us that he points us to Melchizedek. He's just doing exactly what Psalm 110.4 told him to do. One of the things that the Hebrew writer sees in all of this is that Jesus, as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, is a greater priest than any of those who had come before Look with me at Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Look with me beginning in verse 4. It's amazing how much the Hebrew writer saw in those three verses in Genesis 14. How often we would have read them in a, in a daily quiet time and just, and just read them and kept moving and we would have seen little of significance there. But the Hebrew writer reads those three verses about Abram and Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and he sees all of this glorious truth there. Look at this, beginning in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office had a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. So we have brothers giving tithes to brothers. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You say, Justin, my, my, my brain's not turned on enough today. This, is, this seems tough. Maybe if this is hard for you, let me give you a little bit of encouragement. Um, in Hebrews 5, the Hebrew writer first says something about Melchizedek, and then he warns the Hebrews that he's writing to, this is going to get deep. <laughs> he says, this is going to get difficult. But then in Hebrews 6, he rebukes them for not being ready for it. <laughs> so I hope you're, you're ready for it. It is a little difficult, but it is glorious. See how much the Hebrew writer saw in those three verses in Genesis 14. He saw Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And he knows that it is superiors who bless inferiors. That is, sons don't bless their fathers in the Old Testament Scripture. You ever see a son giving a blessing to his father? No. No. It's fathers who lay their hands on their sons and give the blessing. It was always one of a higher station, blessing one of a lower station. And so when he looks at this passage in Genesis 14, the Hebrew writer says, This man Melchizedek, who blesses Abraham, must have been greater than Abraham. Folks, who was Abraham to the Jews? I mean, here's the father of the faith. here is for, for Jews who had converted to Christianity, they had been taught their whole lives to revere Abraham as this, as this great man. And surely by God's grace, he was a great man. And they had learned even to value themselves growing up in connection with Abraham. I am special. I am a Jew because I am connected to Abraham. And suddenly, the Hebrew writer is writing to them and saying, oh, by the way, there's someone much greater than Abraham. Someone who gets a whopping three verses. Melchizedek. The Hebrew writer had read the Scriptures carefully. He had seen that Abram was willing to honor Melchizedek. That Abram even gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had gained in battle. And the Hebrew writer realizes something else too, that that Abram was the father of the Levites, the priests. That all the priests that were ever to come in Israel ultimately came from Abraham. And so one could almost say that when Abram here submits himself to honoring Melchizedek, he is doing so as a representative of all those priests who were to come from him. The argument there in those verses is that all of Israel would pay tithes to the Levitical priest. But in a sense, through Abraham, here are the Levitical priests paying tithes to Melchizedek. All of this to say, look how great this man must be. Look how superior in authority. So what does it mean in Psalm 110.4 when it tells us that Jesus then comes in the order? Of Melchizedek. It means thousands upon thousands of priests have made sacrifices and cared for God's house and served the people of God. But Jesus is greater than them all. There has never been a priest like Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was greater than all the priests that ever lived and he was the shadow. (laughs) Jesus is the real thing. The last few minutes we have together as we prepare to go to the table, I want to show you very briefly. We, we just don't have time to go into this with the depth that, that we would like. When we one day preach through Hebrews, we'll be able to spend more time. But Let me just mention to you three ways in which Jesus is the greatest of all priests. We love to talk about Jesus as our Savior. When I speak about Jesus as our Savior, that resonates with you. You know what I'm talking about. We don't talk enough about Jesus as our priest. You realize that if we don't have Jesus as our priest, we don't have Jesus as our Savior. You know that? Let me give you three reasons he is the greatest priest of all. Number one, Jesus is the greatest priest of all because of his holy character. Because of his holy character. Look at the first two verses of Hebrews 7. Look at the first two verses of Hebrews 7. What, uh, what the Hebrew writer is going to do for us here is remind us who Melchizedek is. He's going to summarize what we read a while ago. Beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, and said to Abraham, And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Alright, so he reminds us what happened, right? He just reminded us of the story of Genesis 14. He gave a a one-sentence summary of the account of Genesis 14. Alright, then he wants us to notice something that he saw in those verses. Keep reading. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem. That is... King of peace. So here are two facts. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So this man is not like the king of Sodom. What comes to your mind when you think king of Sodom? Immorality. But when you hear Melchizedek, you are to think the opposite of the king of Sodom. You are to think king of righteousness, integrity, fairness, justice. And then not only that, but he is the king of Salem. By the way, we think Salem was a Canaanite city that would later be known as Jerusalem. right? But in these days, as far as we can tell, it was called Salem. And, and Melchizedek appears to have been the early king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. So Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. He is a king of peace. And he is the shadow pointing to Christ, who comes in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus is a superior priest to all who have come before because in Him is righteousness and peace. So many scriptures speak of our Savior with these two themes coming together. A righteous king, a king of peace, ruling over a righteous people and a people of peace. For unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of of the increase of his government and of peace. There shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When Isaiah in chapter 9 foretells the coming of the Messiah, here are two themes that are emphasized. He will be one of peace and He will be one of righteousness and He will rule over a people of peace and a people of righteousness. Think of all the kings that Israel had. Think about how many of them were unrighteous. Think about how many of them reigned over a people of violence and immorality. Yet here we have a king who is a righteous king. A king of peace. And he is to rule over a kingdom that is marked by those same qualities. The citizens under his rule will be known for their righteousness and their peace. Oh, friends, what ought to mark the church of God? (laughs) Today, as Christians, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our lives are more and more being characterized by these things. (coughs) Excuse me. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will dwell under His sovereignty and perfect righteousness and perfect peace forever. Think about the priests of the Old Testament. How often do we read of wicked priests in the Old Testament? Do you remember the sons of Eli? Do you remember the rampant immorality that characterized them? Consider having a priest representing you before Almighty God? Consider having a priest representing you before Almighty God who is filled with lust and pride and greed and foolishness and all sorts of immorality. Is that the kind of priest you want representing you before Almighty God? So what a blessing it is that our priest, the one provided for us by God Himself, is a priest of perfection. When God looks at our priest, He sees all that is good and glorious and right. When God looks at our priest, He sees one who is holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and all that is sinful. Is this not the priest you want? Aren't you thankful that you don't have to go to a confessional, to a priest who is as much a sinner as you are, to represent you before God? When you go and you pray to God in the name of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are praying in the name of a priest whom God loves supremely. When we come before God through our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know that God will hear, He will pay attention to our prayers for Christ's sake. For our priest is a man of righteousness and peace. Beautiful in the eyes of God. This brings us to our second reason why Jesus is the greatest of all priests. Namely, He holds His office forever. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24 of Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. In other words, every other priest who has ever lived has had this in common. They died. The mortality rate among priests is 100%. Except for one one who has no beginning and no end every other sinner i mean every other priest was a sinner and the wages of sin is death and there have been many many priests <clears throat> and when one died another took his place but because jesus christ is sinless pure and perfect he is our priest forever he is our permanent priest I'm not at all trying to pick on Roman Catholics here. But I do find it sad that so many in our nation and around the world continue going to earthly priests to represent them before God. And when that priest dies because of that priest's sin, they have to go and find another priest to represent them before God. When offered to them is the Lord Jesus Christ as their once-for-all priest forever. It's interesting that Melchizedek is a shadow of Jesus even in this. Did Melchizedek die? Yes. Was he a sinner? Yes. But look at what the Hebrew writer noticed in verse 3 of Hebrews 7. Look at Hebrews 7 verse 3. Speaking of Melchizedek, he says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Remember how Jews love their genealogies. It was important that priests be able to show their heritage. It was important that priests be able to prove that they were in the priestly line. In fact, they needed to show what part of the priestly line they were in, for which family of the Levites you were in determined what your function was. So it was very important that they knew who were your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. And They needed to have these family lines and these genealogies. And yet, we have this one priest named Melchizedek and we know nothing. We have no record of His birth, no record of His death. He just appears and then He's gone. He appears for three verses out of nowhere and all we have is Him serving as a priest. And the Hebrew writer says that even this points us to Jesus who has always existed and will always exist and continues in His priestly office forever. Dear Christian friends, aren't you glad that Jesus Christ who is standing before God this very moment on your behalf, representing you, presenting Himself as the Lamb slain for your sins, will do this forever. Think about this with me, church. If for any millisecond Jesus was to cease His priestly duty, if He was to cease for one presenting himself before the Father as the Lamb slain for your sins. If you were to do that for a millisecond, we would immediately fall back under the condemnation of God. For all eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, for ages of ages of ages, we will live in the glory of God. We will live in the joy of God's presence. And it will always be because of the constant, never-ending work of Jesus Christ presenting Himself in His priestly work for us. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, it will have been 10,000 years of Jesus continuing His constant priestly work so that we can be there. God has ordained it so that every aspect of our salvation and every moment in which we dwell in grace is a moment owing entirely to the person and work of Jesus and His work as our priest. God has ordained it so that everything concerning our relationship with Him depends on Christ and it depends on Christ every moment. God has ordained it this way so that now and forever and every moment in between it, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who is deserving of the glory and the honor for the grace we receive. Are you not thankful for your great priest? This brings us to the last reason that Jesus is superior to all priests who came before. It is because Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Do you see it in verse 25? Hebrews 7, verse 25. Because Jesus is perfect in righteousness and peace, because He is a priest forever, consequently, verse 25, consequently He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. Folks, what is Jesus Christ doing right now, this moment for you? If you're a believer, He is interceding for you. He is keeping you in the love of God by His present work for you. Surely goodness and mercy, we sang it earlier, surely goodness and mercy will always follow you. Why? Because surely there will never be a moment when Jesus is not before the Father on your behalf. Why do we believe that God who began this good work in us will bring it to completion? Why can we say that if all the Father gives the Son, He will lose none of them? Why can we say that those who are truly God's will be truly God's forever and secure in His grace? Because all of those things depend entirely upon the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as priest, and He will never step down from His office. He will never cease His intercession. As long as Jesus is there before God making intercession for us, as long as Jesus is there standing before the Father as the propitiation for our sins, God is just to continue blessing us with His grace. Indeed, as long as Jesus is there as the propitiation for our sins before the Father, God would be unjust to still put His wrath upon us. How can God look at the one who paid for our sins in front of Him and then look to us who are Christ and say, I'm going to make you pay for your own sins anyway? Impossible. It would not happen. God would never say such a thing. God designed our salvation to work in this way. We will never lose our salvation because of the ongoing priestly work of Christ. If we're truly His. Let me close with two exhortations. First to Christians. Christians, consider what would happen if you had to represent yourself before God. Consider what would happen if you had to be your own priest. As, as God surveyed your life, using the Ten Commandments as a standard, what would his verdict be towards you? Do you remember what happened to Isaiah when he stood as a sinner in the presence of God? Do you remember how he cried out for his own death? Woe is me. Word woe in the Hebrew means death, doom, destruction. He was calling for his own death because he thought he was as good as dead, being in the presence of the glorious God. It was only because of atonement for sins that He wasn't incinerated. This is how it would be for us did we not have a perfect and great priest. Does it not cause you to love your Savior all the more to know that He stands in your place before God so that you too can be with Him forever? We love to look back at the cross and all that Jesus has done for us in the past. We love to look to the future and all that is going to happen when Christ returns. But friends, we need to see this present work of Christ. We need to know that at this very moment, Jesus stands before God as our salvation and He will save His people to the uttermost. And so as we come to the Lord's table, my exhortation to you is to love your Lord Jesus Christ. To cherish Him. Allow your heart to be filled with love for Him. Allow your heart to burst with love for Him, longing for the day when you will be with Him forever. Unbelievers, do you understand that as long as you refuse to turn from your sins and follow Jesus, you will have to represent yourself before God? You will stand before God, a rebellious sinner. Christ will not intercede for you. He does not intercede for you. And you will go to hell. It does not have to be that way. God has loved the world so much that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Even this moment, Jesus stands willing and ready to receive you. It would be His pleasure to intercede for you before the Father, to present Himself, His body and His blood as the propitiation for your sins? Will you turn from living your own life, your own way? Will you see your sin, turn from it, and submit to Christ? Will you entrust yourself into the arms of this Savior, knowing that He can and will save you to the uttermost? He will forgive you of every sin, and He will make you perfect and holy on the day you stand before God. Will you run to Christ this morning? I pray you will. Let's pray. Christians in this room, you take these moments now and just pray a, prayers of, pray a prayer of thanksgiving.